A Sickness in Time by M.F. Thomas and Nicholas Berkettle. Narrated by Roseanne Sinclair. Chapter 4 I have done that, says my memory. I cannot have done that, says my pride, and remains adamant. At last, memory yields. This is what Nietzsche said. Shakespeare said it with less brutality. To thine own self be true, and it must follow. As the night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. The insight is the same. Josh said, keeping his cadence even and non-threatening, All lies start from within, and so we almost never consciously tell lies to someone else, because what we say is what we have already convinced ourselves is true. Or perhaps we simply think of it as a small lie worth telling in service of a greater truth. But let's come back to something else from Nietzsche. All things, he said, are subject to interpretation. Whichever interpretation prevails at a given time is a function of power, not truth. Power. Josh paused for a moment. He heard the amplified word echo back at him as it struck the rear wall of the hall and rebounded. He knew he had the audience's absolute attention. He even imagined he could sense people leaning closer to the screens on which they were watching the live feed of his speech. Since it had been announced that billionaire computer language visionary Josh Scribner would be coming out of seclusion to give the keynote speech at this conference, there had been a buzz about whether or not he would say something with a capital S. That he would say nothing was a safe bet, was expected. A good keynote speech was ideally a dazzlingly crafted performance of nothing saying. Those who whispered, though, who suspected that there was something he could say, had already been speculating. Not because the result of him saying something would be positive. It would probably be horrible. But at least it wouldn't be boring. Drama, Josh thought in his brief pause, is a response to boredom. In the preamble to this portion of the speech, drowning as it was in the kind of epigrams that were so often abused by acts of nothing saying, nevertheless teased, hinted, suggested that a very dramatic something might be said. The audience picked up on the cue better than Pavlov's dog. Josh didn't speak off the cuff well in public. And if he didn't get to the juicy stuff, he didn't know how he'd be able to veer back into the pablum of his old draft. Funny that his aversion to appearing clumsy in speech would be the final prod to saying the words that would radically change his whole future. Josh cleared his throat. Let me start with a truth about myself. A very well-known truth. I first made my fortune in school when I helped codify what became known as the bridge alphabet that allowed human-made programs to interface with, read, and directly influence the electrical impulses of the human brain. In layman's terms, I helped computers and minds speak directly to each other in real time, with no barriers of consciousness between them. This caused incredible excitement and incredible panic because a mind that could be accessed by a machine could be healed like never before, preserved like never before, even enhanced like never before. 
but it could also be manipulated like never before. Josh glanced compulsively at his wrist monitor at the numbers which gave him a snapshot of his daughter's condition. Then he continued, These fears are well-founded because they show us knocking at some very profound doors. Doors that conceal things we cannot yet conceive. We have long accepted that there is a virtual us made of all the things that we share on the R-Web. Jokes, memories, images, timelines of our lives. But we know these things are not fully us. We always hold things back. The network, the virtual organism we have built that wants to consume everything, share everything, never gets all of us. And I think that trepidation is very human. We suspect that in giving too much, we are rushing towards the brink of losing something which defines us. That's why the devices we made, what we call beetles today, were heavily regulated, allowed only for the gravest needs of medicine and research, and most importantly of all, built as closed systems. In a world defined by connectivity, they were made so that it would be impossible for them to interface with a network. They could not be hacked, could not be corrupted. They became part of the same closed system inside our skulls as our own most private thoughts. This is the public story of how I first made my fortune. And it is true. It is, however, incomplete. I want you just for a moment to imagine. Last night I was telling a friend that imagining is how we glimpse things that can be real, although we don't know the path to making them real. It is the great blessing of our species but one that has been used to bring nightmares into our world. One night when I was 19 years old and working on the Beetle Project, I imagined something, but I lost faith in what I had imagined. I dismissed it as too outrageous to be possible. When someone else wanted to pay me an obscene amount of money for this theory, I cashed his check and left all the way to the bank. And I forgot. I forgot what I had seen. Power can corrupt truth because it corrupts minds. From pride or fear or simple inertia, we let power have its say about what truth is. We let its interpretation so deep inside us that eventually we mouth their own rationalizations without even being told to. We become perpetrators of power's designs. This is all too similar to some virus codes I've written. The audience, which recognized even a small laugh line such as this, responded appropriately, although the agonizing proximity to substance in Josh's speech made it a very nervous laughter. Josh continued, We have all heard the stories about the rich and reckless having black market surgery, having beetles implanted in countries, that have held out against signing the treaty bans in order to accelerate their minds to make them better traders, better deal-makers. They widen the gap even further between themselves and those who cannot access such advantages. We hear these stories and do nothing about them. Why is that? Do we feel powerless to stop them from having what they want? Are they right that possessing the virtues and values that they flatter themselves earn them their wealth? 
it automatically follows that they will only use these abilities in virtuous ways? Do we look on with envy and allow this to carry on because we cling to a dream that one day we will be able to buy into such an elite category, the first true example of Humanity Plus? Perhaps what finally stops us from acting is this, that even the worst rumors are true, that beetles are dangerous to their owners in ways that have not yet been documented, that they are only doing it to themselves. That is not our problem. But I imagined all those years ago, and what I ask you to imagine today is that beetles are dangerous, dangerous in ways that your rational mind will tell you is impossible and that they are hurting all of us, not just their users, but every human being on planet Earth. Now the crowd was starting to murmur. Clearly they'd wanted to murmur for several minutes now, and had only been held back by social custom. Finally, Josh thought, I've poked you enough that you'll be rude. They got ruder as the speech went on, as Josh started laying out the story of what was happening, what was going to happen, and what had to be done to stop it. He knew even as he spoke that he sounded crazy, not just crazy in premise, but crazy in style. That was the problem with explaining something that sounded crazy. The very act of trying to convince someone of it inevitably involved so many foreign concepts so much strain to weave disparate data into a coherent web that you couldn't help but look fevered and demented and totally untrustworthy. Josh had a new empathy for people who yelled on sidewalks. As he left the podium to tepid and baffled applause, he was already pulling out his pocket screen and tapping a couple of buttons because he knew the first face he would see, and yes, there she was, and Louisa Gill looking at him with a face of horrified sympathy. Poor Anna Louisa. She was a fearless businesswoman, one of his strongest allies and staunchest defenders, and someone who henceforth would by totally understandable necessity never be seen in public with him again. Check your inbox, he told Anna Louisa. You and the others have letters of resignation for every board that I'm on. She barely seemed able to find the words before he was surrounded by a crush of reporters, power brokers, and people who just wanted to be near the source of the excitement. Good luck was all she managed to say. It was an hour before Josh made it out of the hotel hosting the conference, and another hour back to his own. Every device he had was chirping and quivering with messages from all over the world, and a couple from people on space stations, too. Many, many people had opinions, encouragements, and threats to share. The established media companies were putting their money on the Josh Scribner went insane storyline, with only the feisty anti-establishment sources dipping their toes into the Josh Scribner sounded crazy but his claims merit study waters. The nuttiest fringes were popping champagne, The security wall in his pad was getting an incredible workout, too. For a while, Josh watched the battle in close detail as a worthy distraction. He wanted to see what hackers were trying these days, if there was anything genuinely new out there, 
or just the idiot's version of new. The old tried with brute force. Humanity is an interesting ecosystem, he thought. People with the skill to break into his research, if it could even be done, were most certainly not the people who could understand it. And the people who could afford to pay for others to do the hacking and understanding were third parties entirely. But everyone acted on faith that if they did their part, the people with those disparate abilities would find one another. This was why no trace of the research was on his pad. Josh had high confidence in his abilities, but there were 11 billion other people on Earth. Enough of them working together could absolutely overcome his defenses. If not by skill, then by simple relentless pressure, like a carpet of swarming ants leveling a field. He muted everything in his hotel suite save the ambient sound of forest leaves and creatures that Sierra enjoyed the most. Sierra was awake and reading a book to her nurse, Lamar, who was doing a tremendous job of being surprised and entertained by it. Josh hugged her delicately, checked all her monitors. How are you feeling, Nugget? he asked. Tired, Sierra replied, burrowing her head into Josh's side. Her hair needed to be washed. And just like that, everything else outside the room The billions of dollars Josh had probably just lit on fire in his own portfolio. The giant crosshairs he had painted on his back in questioning the virtues of the planet's elite. The possible doom spiral of the whole species. They were suspended completely while Josh held his daughter. Lamar kept his distance, understanding and respecting the moment. Well, Josh said softly, Daddy's all done with his big speech for the day. So how about we have some dinner? Sierra nodded and put her arms around his neck to be carried out into the kitchen. Did they like your speech? She asked in a drowsy voice. Josh wondered how he could possibly summarize the reaction to his daughter. If you could chart the whole mix of shock, passion, indignation, righteousness, tribalism, apoplexy, Cynical ambivalence, belief, skepticism, horror, and determination he had just stirred into existence as competing vectors on a chart? Could you cancel some out? Reduce them down like an equation until you got a simple dot on a spectrum that said either like or dislike? And could you reverse the process? Unpack the noise hiding inside that simple dot to reveal and understand the broadening rainbow of emotions that defined the ever-growing world of every child? In its own way, it was such a wonderful question. Did they like his speech? I think they did, he said. Josh let Sierra use a small spray bottle at the table to mist the salad. She invested the process with great seriousness, putting both her little hands around the bottle and directing a focused frown at the bowl spraying in slow, thorough passes. Josh knew that look. He had seen it reflected back on him in screens since he was younger than Sierra. He also appreciated that the spray bottles had come a long way in aesthetics and efficiency since they had become as ubiquitous to the table as salt shakers. Is that enough? she asked in her usual whisper. Josh speared a big leaf, 
shoved it all into his mouth at once and crunched away. Mmm, just right. You brought these veggies to life. She smiled with great pride, but still refused to eat any veggies herself. Little do you know, Josh thought to himself, what's inside your beloved hot dogs these days. Josh and Sierra and Lamar had a quiet dinner, and it was the best thing Josh could have imagined doing at the moment. Once Sierra was back in bed, Josh and Lamar whispered in the hallway outside Lamar's room. The headaches have been less severe, Lamar shared. Either the new medications are working or she's just getting used to them. I don't want her getting used to them, Josh said with a defeated sigh. What you said today? Lamar let that dangle for a moment. You heard about it, huh? Well, I've got a big family, and all of them wanted to let me know I was working for a lunatic. Yeah, but you knew that already, didn't you? Lamar smiled. Craziest man I've ever known. Josh had wondered if today would cost him the services of someone who had long ago ceased to feel like an employee and begun to feel like part of the family. It sounded like, for the moment at least, he didn't have to worry. So what about what I said today? Is that the reason? Why you never got a beetle for Sierra? She would certainly qualify for a legal one even in America. It had been a different kind of release when Josh had made the drastic public confession earlier. This was much more intimate. It brought shudders of emotion out of him. Partially, yeah. Did that stuff make sense to you? Well, when you really get into the weeds with stuff like telepathic fields and the crazy brain plague that we are all going to get, it sounded pretty scary. But beetles can't talk to each other, right? I mean, you designed them that way. So I don't get how it was going to work. There in the hall, Josh chuckled to himself. I should have tried the speech out on you first, because that's exactly the idea I needed to flip in people. Beetles can't talk to each other, but brains want to talk to each other. They use every tool they're given to try to connect, to communicate. But those connections are how we evolve and reproduce. You give something as powerful as a human brain a new tool, it's going to find a way to use it. In genius ways. That just happen to have terrible possibilities. So that's why... Keeping a beetle out of her will keep her safe? It won't keep any of us safe, Lamar. But it will keep her safe from something much worse. The thing I couldn't even say in that bit of hell-raising I did today. What's scarier than that? Josh clapped Lamar on the shoulder, almost as if checking it to see if he could put some of this burden off on his friend. But he couldn't yet. And he didn't know if this was a favor or if he was just too tired. Another time. Sleep well. Lamar returned the touch on Josh's arm affectionately. There is no other time. There's this one. I'm glad you're doing what feels right. Hopefully, it's not too late. Josh lay in bed, eyes wide open, staring at the ceiling. It carried a projection of a brilliant field of stars. 
The sky is seen on a clear night in Yosemite, half a world away. But the sounds were of the ocean's lapping waves. Somehow Josh's brain saw no contradiction. Perhaps because the orientation of the stars was knowledge. But what the sound of the waves did to him preceded knowledge. Josh realized that a truly smart hacker would try to get at him through the hotel room. The hotel, despite its luxury reputation, would not have his quality of security. It could be accessed. His room could be found. They could probably wire right into the environmental controls and talk to him through the speakers, over the lapping waves. Biometric data would be on the room pads. Maybe they could even speak in low, hypnotic tones with the waves, trying to get him to write down one or two of his encryption keys' address as he slept. The best hacks, Josh mused, incorporate the elements outside the system. But he wasn't worried about the ones that wanted access, or just contact. The one he was afraid of, if he decided to come, wouldn't come knocking. And all the virtual shields Josh could throw up might not be enough. Today, Josh had made it more likely that he would die soon. The only blessing was that he had also seen to it that death would now look highly suspicious. Josh's pad chimed with a voice request at three in the morning. He knew who was calling because he had set the pad to block every other incoming request. He rolled over and tapped the pad to approve contact. What time is it where you are, Minjun? The same time as it is for you, my notorious friend. Minjun's normal tone of gentle kidding was layered with something else. A coating of gravity. Something troubled. It was understandable given the hour, but Josh wasn't used to hearing it from his friend. So you're still in town? You saw the speech? I did, Josh. You know, I have always trusted and admired your genius. But I must ask, is it true? Everything you said? Josh understood now how deeply he had rattled his own best friend. Despite how compelled he had been to give the speech, it pierced his heart to feel responsible for affecting someone close to him this way. It is. Do you think it is? too late to stop it? I don't know. I wanted to sound an alarm, encourage more research, but there's a lot of human nature working against us. People won't want to believe. Josh, I have not slept because I've been thinking. Sometimes one must stop everything else to think for a very long time. The irony is that usually the answer to what we are thinking about is simple and comes to us right away. But we need to spend this time accepting that it is the answer. Josh didn't think he had ever heard his friend need so much warm-up to get to a point. Minjun, what is it that you want to say to me? What you said at the bar about regret? What if I told you? There really was a way to change the past. A Sickness in Time by M.F. Thomas and Nicholas Thurkettle 
narrated by Roseanne Sinclair. If you love listening to this podcast, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts. Learn more about the novel by visiting www.sicknessintime.com.